For those of you who weren't with us uh, yesterday evening in particular, uh, our uh, speaker, Pastor Jason Parker, is with us from Colorado Springs. And uh, though he didn't meet his wife in Colorado, he's otherwise lived mostly there. Did I get that all right? Thank you. Um, and so he is a, a Colorado native. Um, his, pa- his father is a pastor as well um, in pastoring, but he's been pastoring at his church there for 17 years, and um, it's a joy to have him with us. I thought um, uh, Pastor Parker will probably do a more formal review of what we looked at last night. I thought I might um, uh, uh, encourage, especially for those who weren't with us, but even for those who uh, were with us, uh, summarizing some of the things that we learned. So uh, as we think about conservatism and Christian conservatism, there is a good and proper way to live the Christian life, to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, Pastor Parker especially focused in on how as we understand the Trinity and as we apply that to how we live our lives. That works itself out into a conservative way of thinking about life, about acting and living in life. And in particular, not just how the Trinity uh, works itself out in our living uh, Christian lives, but uh, even thinking about Christ and understanding who Christ is in relation to us uh, works itself out in uh, in a way that helps us uh, to understand what is good and true and beautiful. Uh, and I thought uh, last night he mentioned, uh, just in passing, but I thought it was worth repeating, that frequently those who love Christian conservatism um, will come to an appreciation of Christian conservatism because they're exposed to something that is good and then they recognize um, as they understand that which is good, they understand the Christian conservatism uh, in it. And something worth uh, worth repeating. I'm going to give the rest of our time to uh, Pastor Parker. And he had uh, talked with me and mentioned that uh, he doesn't, so I'll, I'll say it and he can say it again. But he doesn't mind at all, it, since um, we're a smaller group, we're not a huge group. Uh, he doesn't mind at all if... Uh, we can take questions at the end, but he doesn't mind being interrupted. Um, is interrupted the best word? Uh, you could mention if there are things that you're thinking about, even as he's going uh, through and teaching, um, don't hesitate to uh, ask. So at this time, Brother Parker. Thank you. And yes, uh, just definitely a change from last night. If As we're going through this, um, I would be happy to interact if you have questions as we're working on it because I'd love to tailor this a little bit to what you uh, are thinking or questions you might have. And of course, we can do that at the end as well. But as even as I'm talking tonight here, if you have a question, feel free to put up your hand and, and uh, we'll love to interact about that. So yes, let me uh, get a little bit of a running start here for tonight so that we remember what we're talking about. We... Uh, Last night, as Pastor Nathan kind of set the theme for the conference as trotting on old paths, um, fostering conservative Christianity. So last, last night, if I was to title it with anything, it would be, I am the way. That holding fast to these old paths is ultimately just a function of trying to hold fast to Christ. That's what we're after here. Uh, we said, what is conservatism as we're talking about it here? It is the spirit-enlightened recognition that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. And so fostering conservative Christianity means being true to the reality of the gift of Christ. It means staying on the one way to the Father. Uh, We are asking ourselves as Christian conservatives, what would it be like to be walking in Christ in such a way that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? What will, 
how do we hold fast to Christ our head in all things? Or I use the illustration of that hymn attributed to Patrick of Ireland, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. This is what we're after. Um, So having set the direction of fostering conservative Christianity with the rule of faith that we talked about last night, how that orients us both to the scriptures and to our God, the triune God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Um, We want to sketch in a little bit of that path. If that's the path that we're on, let's start drawing out some of the implications and sketching in the the markers for the path here. And and let me mention this. This would have been really helpful if I had known this last night, but I'll mention it to you right now. Um, I'm going to be alluding to or working off of what we talked about last night when we came to that culmination of the Nicene Creed. And it's actually in your gray hymnals right there, Hymns to the Living God, uh, number 272, I believe, is the uh, number there. You might want to have that handy. If that's something uh, you already have memorized, then maybe you don't need it. But... uh, just because we'll be referencing it. We won't be walking through it systematically tonight, but we will be continuing to reference because this is, all we're doing now is drawing out. We've set the direction. Now we're drawing out some of these truths in three particular areas. Actually, there will be a fourth one, uh, but three tonight that we're going to try to cover here. The first one is creation. Pardon me. Creation. Mankind. And salvation. The fourth one we're going to draw out, which is going to be the emphasis uh, here on out here, is going to be the church. I believe that's a crucial area we need to work on fostering as conservative Christians. But even in working to that, before we get that, I want to work through creation, mankind, and salvation, because I think that will help us to understand all of this in light of Christ, our triune God, and especially as it works itself out in, in the church. Let's start tonight here with creation. You notice in the Nicene Creed, uh, phrases like, you believe in, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Perhaps those who were here with us last night, uh, noticed how often even Irenaeus and some of these others, uh, would constantly refer to God as the creator, the maker of all things, uh, maker of heaven and earth. The creed also says, by whom all things were made, speaking of Jesus Christ, right? I believe in Jesus Christ. By him, all things were made. Even when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the creed calls him the Lord and giver of life. The Lord and giver of life. We have our triune God active and overflowing in his love, making this world. And one of the things I need to start with here that's so foundational for a conservative Christian mindset that helps us to work out into the practical issues of life is this idea of creation out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. Or you're probably familiar with the the famous Latin expression. What's that? Good. Thank you. Um, Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. We start here because it helps us to realize that creation was entirely free or gratuitous. God didn't create out of necessity as if he was lacking anything. He didn't need a creation to love before he could be a lover. Instead, his own infinite life overflowed in a good creation designed for his glory. The spirit hovered, the father uttered his word, and a good world formed and filled came into existence. This is the foundation of our understanding of creation. This creation ex nihilo also shows us that God is distinct from his creation. Uh, The universe is not God, and it never could be, contrary to some pagan ideas of eternally existing matter or things of that nature. And yet, being totally distinct from his creation is the reason why the triune God can be most interior to his creation. There's both complete distinction and yet completely interior. You might remember the Apostle Paul himself proclaiming, in him we live and move and have our being. Augustine, in his classic work, The Confessions, 
If you haven't read that, you need to read that book. That's on the short list of one of the great all-time Christian works. But he made a profound observation about his search for God as he's reflecting on uh, his life. And he says, as it's all written in the form of a prayer, but you, speaking to God, were more inward to me than my most inward part and higher than the highest element within me. You are more interior to me than I am to myself, in a sense, he says. Now, a contemporary author, uh, D.C. Schindler, expounds on this, por- on this point that Augustine is making. He says, it does not mean simply that there is a space, a hole in my being where I am not, and which is thus open to be filled by God. For this would God- make God still external to me. Rather, there is a deep intimacy implied in Augustine's statement. God's present is not a displacement of the self. He doesn't have to make you move over in order to be there. Instead, where I am most fundamentally myself, there in my inmost heart of hearts, God is present. God and I coincide in this most interior place. But God is present as already there before me. It is precisely because God indwells me in this sense and indeed all things whatsoever in the order of creation as a union of love that we can say that all things love God more than they love themselves and do so naturally. This is the very nature of the kind of creation that the triune God brings into existence. You see, creation ex nihilo establishes that the universe has nothing else to shape its character than the character of its creator. It is what God wanted it to be. Uh, Let us ponder that for a minute. I've used this illustration in the past many times. Perhaps this is helpful for you too. If you think about something like gold, gold, What do we use that for? Well, we use it for jewelry. When a jeweler makes a ring out of gold, he has to work with the nature of what gold is in order to make that kind of a thing. Now, the very nature of gold, its molecular structure and various things means that we don't use gold as two by fours to frame houses. It simply wouldn't work for that kind of... We have to work with the pre-existing nature that's there whenever we do anything. God didn't work with those kind of limitations, did he? He didn't have to work with something that was already there and make it be what he wanted it to be. He is the only pre-existing condition. His character determines what creation would be. And that means, for example, that time and space are gifts of God's love. In him we live and move and have our being. As believers reflected on God, they came to realize, as Bethius put it, eternity is the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of limitless life. Get that, life. Eternity is life, he said. Only God has that kind of life, but he overflows to make creatures to be able to share in his life. Another man has written, eternity does not denigrate time, but creates time in order through intelligent creatures like you here tonight to invite a return. Augustine presents God as the fullness of being as presence freely creating, sustaining and redeeming the universe and all of human history in the triune presence. All extensions and durations, all past, present and future events are present in the immutable and eternal understanding, knowing and loving who are Father, Word and Spirit. The eternal God creates the universe in the totality of its spatio-temporal reality. There is no before or after in God's eternal presence. This is amazing to contemplate as we elevate our minds to God, that everything that exists is the outflow of the triune love. And that's why it exists. And that's why it has the kind of nature it does. So it's beautifully true that as the scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The things that have been made show the invisible attributes of God, Romans 1.20. The order of love within the Godhead is manifested in his work of creation. God's good world is a world saturated with meaning and inherent in that meaning is love. 
This is how we have to learn to think about the world because we confess, I believe in God the Father and I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the maker of all things. Of course, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ who brings this created order to fulfillment. Just think about Colossians 1, 15 through 23. <clears throat> the beloved son, Jesus Christ, is supreme in creation. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the precise, visible expression of God. He's also, the Bible describes him here, as the firstborn of all creation. He holds the position of supreme Lord over all that is not God. This is unpacked a bit for us here in this passage. He is prior to everything else and he is the personal unifying principle of the universe. What makes everything cohere? Why do things actually work? I mean, all of you probably got in a car tonight and turned it on and there's a whole kind, all kinds of systems working together there and you drove on roads and you expected those roads to actually be in the same place they were yesterday. And, and the world isn't random and it's not chaos. Do you realize that's because of Jesus Christ? He is the one who makes this world that way. He is the head of the church, the passage says. Or I should back up. Um, he is supreme in reconciling all things to God in verses 18 through 20 here. He is the head of the church for he is the cause of the church's existence and the source of her life. And, and as he is the first one to overcome death and rise to immortality. And so he is preeminent. And this is because God was pleased to make all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and thus to effect reconciliation reconciliation of all things in Christ. This reconciliation takes place through Christ's death in his body of flesh, the text says. So that should lead you to realize, just like Colossians goes on to say in chapter two there, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And folks, when the text says all, it means all. All the treasures of wisdom. If there is wisdom and knowledge out there, it's hidden in Christ. That's the ultimate source of all of it. Nothing of it exists apart from him. And so you should walk in him, the text says. Everything about your life you must see as it is in Jesus and not according to merely human philosophy and tradition. You must live according to Christ for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. We talked about that just a little bit this morning here. <clears throat> Our reflection so far should help us to see the deep wisdom expressed in Genesis chapter one. You know, the creation story. As the text, uh, as scripture expresses it to us, God creates. And six times he sees what he creates and then he judges it to be good. In a climactic seventh observation then in the text, God sees everything he has made and behold, it was very good. Now here's what a conservative mindset recognizes when it sees creation. It begins to see that goodness is fundamental to this world. Goodness is fundamental. Let me say this, goodness is fundamental, not conflict. Goodness is fundamental, not evil. Darwinian naturalism, for example, is wrong in every possible way. And one of its most fundamental errors is to see everything through the lens of conflict. But that isn't right. Social contract theory that tries to understand why uh, we humans form the societies we do is wrong to see conflict as the basis of human society. God is good and goodness is fundamental to his creation. I hope you, 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 you feel that in your bones if you're a conservative tonight. One of the things I'm hoping is coming out as we're talking here, I alluded to this this morning and I'll probably mention it a couple other times, is that contrary to the way many people think about a conservative mindset, it really is not a defensive, buckle down, don't let anything happen to me kind of a, a mindset. I'm not going to change anything. It's actually an open, expansive mindset, which is pursuing goodness. I want to see what is really, truly good. And I want to live in it because that's the way God made the world. That's what ultimately is real. 
The Bible informs us that everything God has done has his wisdom built right into it. Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. Everything you see, hear, taste, touch, smell should be showing you God's wisdom because his wisdom and his word are always with him. That is how he made the world. Now, from what we've said already then, creation is good. Uh, Creation inherently references God. It reveals God. Its very nature is to point beyond itself to God. And here's another thing that a conservative mindset realizes. Symbolism is not something that we impose on an inert and meaningless matter. Creation is symbolic. God is actively upholding and directing all things. Creation references God. In fact, more specifically, creation references Christ. I've been using many of the early church fathers or Christians as illustrations in um, in these talks on purpose. Uh, and it was a commonplace among the church fathers that Christ is the logos, the the ratio, the ratio of all creation. You all know what a ratio is as we talk about it, right? Uh, it's denominating one thing in terms of another. Uh, just recently I was working with some mortar as I was trying to repair uh, a crack in a foundation wall. And what do you do with that? Well, you mix a certain part of water to a certain part of the mortar and you have a ratio there, right? Um, one thing is meant, is understood in light of another thing. Christ is the ratio for all of creation. Everything is understood in reference to him. <clears throat> um, that shows us that there really is a fundamental unity to everything and that Christ is that unity. So to be united to him is to be rightly related to everything else. The Apostle Paul wasn't exaggerating in the least when he said to the Corinthians, all things are yours. All things. You realize that tonight? If you're in Christ, everything belongs to you because of Christ. It all belongs to him and it belongs to you in him. It really is God's purpose to unite all things in Christ, as Ephesians 1.10 says. This is what creation means. We're beginning to see and feel a world that's very different than we're often taught to think about it. In fact, to build on this a little bit here, we have a world in which there is true intelligibility. There is real reason built into this, wisdom built into this. There is an inherent end or goal that everything is working toward. Or a bigger word for that is teleology, right? Everything is directed toward its end. And what is that end? Christ. Everything that acts, acts for an end or a purpose or a goal. Christ is that end. Um, So as as a believer in Christ, I don't have to try to invent some kind of connection um, between Christ and everything I see. It's already there. I simply need to discover it. And that's part of the fun of life. It's discovering all of how everything uh, is oriented toward Christ. When anything is directed toward, uh, excuse me, I should say it this way. What anything is directed toward by its very nature is what is good for that thing. Everything is moving toward its true consummation in Christ. And we understand that. Everything is ultimately defined by what it is for. And as Christ is what it is for. There is true communion here between heaven and earth. Uh, God is not the God of the gaps. God is not the, the God, uh, the deistic God who's out there somewhere. God is the God who is in all things and innermostly. And everything is what it is because it is revealing him. We need to learn to have those kind of eyes to see. And that's what a conservative mindset is after. That's why, uh, if I can start to use some different terminology here, conservative type thinkers historically embrace natural law 
or something of that nature. Even if they argue about all the details of it, uh, they realize there is a real order in this creation and it's knowable. You can't avoid it. It's there. In fact, it's impossible not to know. The Christian recognizes that this natural order is rooted and grounded in Christ. Apart from him, natural law is unstable and will never achieve its purpose. But it is there. We didn't put it there. God did. And he did it in order that in all things, Christ might be preeminent. As we continue to think about the goodness of creation, its reference to God, its true intelligibility, we also need to remember that creation is good in being inherently generous. Don't you like being around generous people? Guess what? What God made is inherently generous. There's a basic generosity to being. As a lover, God is a giver, and this entire world is a gift. Uh, And I invite you to do this frequently, by the way. Look around you. Just stop and look around you and ask, why is anything there? Why are you here? You know, why does anything exist? It doesn't have to exist, but it does. This whole wild, wonderful world is there. It's actually there. Let there be, God said, and it was so. There's just an explosion of generosity going on here. And that's what our world is. I think the conservative mindset delights in the sheer gratuitousness of life, the abundance of God's giving and giving and giving. I, One of my daughters, when she was really young, just learning to talk, uh, would occasionally come out with this statement, and we still remember it because we chuckled at it as a family. She would, she would be sitting there, and all of a sudden she would say, I'm here. And we would sort of laugh at that, like, well, of course you're here. <laughs> I can see you. You are here. Uh, but actually, it really is true. It's amazing. You are here. And that's all because of God's generosity, God's gift of life. Building on that theme, then, the conservative recognizes that there is a givenness to the world. That's how we approach it, as something that is given. It is a given. The conservative mind respects that. It doesn't try to take the world and remake it into our image and likeness. That's idolatry. Exchanging the creature for the creator. I think the Christian conservative accepts what God has given as good and responds to it with love. Uh, Whenever someone gives you a gift, uh, well, Hopefully your your parents probably all taught you when you were young, right? When somebody gives you a gift, you do things like say thank you or you write a thank you note. You express appreciation for the gift. You respond to that gift with love because that's what what is appropriate to a gift. And that's what we do with this world. Uh, C.S. Lewis, just for one example, I think was very aware that the basic attitude behind modern science is not one of receptivity and gratitude, but of domination, In other words, the world is simply stuff. It's just mere matter and it doesn't mean anything. It's just stuff to be taken and mastered to fulfill our desires. It has no meaning that we don't give to it. It has no higher purpose, which we have to respect. That's why the mindset of the contemporary world has often been called technological ontology. Technology, one man... uh, talks about this a little bit here. Technology of its essence is about means. It's about instrumentality. And as technology becomes a focus or central concern, the object of our energies, our capacity to pay attention tends to atrophy. We become increasingly occupied with what is immediate and so lose an intrinsic interest in the intrinsic meanings of things. The intrinsic meanings of things. Again, I think this distinguishes a conservative mindset from a more liberal one, if we're going to use those terms here. A conservative mind is interested in what things mean intrinsically. He wants to know them so he can love them and respond to them appropriately and use them rightly and develop in a relationship with God uh, in them. 
Another man writes, it's scarcely accidental that the liberal society's characteristic act is an act of consumption. We consume. That's what stuff is for, right? More for me, for my appetites. This is completely in contrast. A conservative society's basic act is giving because of love. Life is a gift. We know that just from creation. In addition, giving is simply the way the world works. Giving is the way the world works. The natural mind, the mind apart from the Spirit of God, I don't think always gets this right. Giving is the way the world works. Jesus was telling us the exact truth when he said that the one who saves his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same will save it. That really is the way the world works because of God. And so sacrifice is natural and good. In a, way, in a world of love, giving yourself away is the way to true life. Sacrifice is good. Now we know that sacrifice takes the form of death now because of sin. But for us who know Christ, in Christ, we become living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Again, the conservative mind uh, gets this, I believe. Let me quote, just to contrast this, let me quote another author here, um, Peter Lightheart, who says, speaking of Christ's sacrifice and the uh, difference it makes, he says, sacrifice is humanized politically and culturally. Liberal societies fool themselves into thinking we can do without sacrifice. The Roman Senate began with animal sacrifice, but not the U.S. Senate. No president or prime minister reads entrails, at least none admits to it. Liberalism claims to order society without reference to God or gods. Politics is about human power and doesn't need to establish any sacrificial connection with the powers of the cosmos. Liberalism says we can have progress without catastrophe, that we can rise to glory without dying. Liberals believe in resurrection without a cross. We think life can go on without death. To prove it, we shove death and dying into closed clinical spaces where we don't have to see or think much about them. We resist self-sacrifice. Self-preservation is the highest good. He says, this is all a trick. Liberal societies still demand sacrifices. Not animal sacrifices, of course, but human ones. Modern liberal societies are Christianized enough to humanize sacrifice. They aren't Christianized enough to imitate Jesus' self-sacrifice. Instead, they demand sacrifices to human deities like the nation and the people or abstractions like capital F, freedom or democracy. I think he's exactly right. Sacrifice is the way the world works. Some contemporary just people out in our society today who identify themselves as conservatives um, really like an author named Wendell Berry. I don't know if anybody here has read anything by Wendell Berry or um, does that ring a bell with anybody? Uh, A few maybe. Berry is uh, a Kentucky writer, essayist, agriculturalist, localist, you might say, for many, many years has written and is a skillful writer. Um, He emphasizes love of the local, Love of the actual land where one lives and the actual people with with whom one lives. And because of that love, there's a patient attention and care given to your own place and thus a resistance to mass movements which gobble up land and people in the name of progress. That's kind of Barry's thinking. And I think a lot of conservative type thinkers recognize that resonates with them. Because the conservative mind, although I think we can and need to do better than someone like Wendell Berry in thinking through these things, I think the conservative mind prioritizes the actual that God has given over the potential that we can dream about because we see fulfillment in being able to love what is given rather than always dreaming of the possibilities of something else, something else, something else. Love what is actually given. I hope you can see that in some ways what we've been talking about so far here tonight is truth, 
goodness, beauty, what are historically called the transcendentals, those things that transcend categorization. We simply have not been talking about them in philosophical terms. We've been talking about them in terms of Christ. The conservative mind loves beauty, for it is the splendor of truth. It's an invitation to what is really real. And all of this is why conservative Christians down through the centuries have understood that when God works to accomplish his gift of redemption, he does not destroy what he has created. He brings it to fulfillment. Uh, Again, a historic phrase for speaking of this kind of a thing was grace perfects nature. Again, we can work hard and quibble even on all the ins and outs of that. But the point is, God brings what he has started to fulfillment. Yes, that does require death. But this is to achieve resurrection, newness of life. The resurrection of the man Christ Jesus was God's yes to his created order. He's not abandoned it because of sin. He doesn't strap his initial created order and then come up with a different one. God doesn't need plan B. He fulfills what he began. Now, I'll just warn you, if you haven't really noted already, this is not the way modernity teaches you to think about anything. Uh, But this isn't new. The English poet John Donne saw this coming in his day in the philosophies of it, in his poem, An Anatomy of the World. He cried out, A new philosophy calls all in doubt. The element of fire is quite put out. The sun is lost and the earth, and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. And freely men confess that this world spent when in the planets in the firmament they seek so many new. They see that this is crumbled out again to his atomies. Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone, all just supply, and all relation. It's that relation of things, the coherence of things, that you know what we see where we find that? Conservative Christians have an answer to this despair. It's Christ. And it informs everything we think about the world around us and everything in it. Now that brings me to the next point I want to talk about here tonight, which is mankind. And I'll be a, I'll, I will be a little bit more brief um, in our next couple points here. But we're building. We're layering layers of truth here. You see in, the, in the, the creed that it speaks of mankind, even when it talks about Jesus Christ being incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. I simply want to make a few points here. Christ reveals ourselves to us. Christ reveals mankind to us. What does it mean to be truly a man? Look at Jesus. When Pilate said, behold the man, I believe he said far more than he knew. The divine second person of the Trinity took to himself a true human nature. So Jesus was everything it means to be a man. And so he reveals what it means to truly be a man and to find true fulfillment in God. We were created in the image and after the likeness of God. When we learn Christ, Ephesians 4 teaches us, we learn to put off the old man, to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3.10 teaches that our new man is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Romans 8.29 gives us this powerful comfort. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In Christ, we as mankind become what we were meant to be. Furthermore, Christ shows us what it means to be a person as he unveils the life of the triune God. Again, this revelation of Christ shattered the human metaphysical view that our relationships are somehow accidental to who we are. Again, let me quote from Augustine in his work on the Trinity. In God, there are no accidents, only substance and relation. The persons name those relations. In God, person is not a substance word, it's a relation word. We learned that last night from Gregory uh, Nazianzus. Now, we image this on a creaturely level. You here tonight are a unique person. Uh, Pardon me. Because to be a person properly means, as we image God, to be unique, 
to be incommunicable, as sometimes it's said. In other words, there never has been and there never will be another you. It's not possible, actually. If you're a person, there will never be another you. Even if scientists were to, what some of them dream of today, if they were to able to take some of your DNA and clone you so that every cell in this clone replicates you in your body, guess what? It wouldn't be you. It would be something else. You are a person. And yet at the same time, as persons, we are not merely individuals. We are living souls in relation to God and to one another. Think of the family. Uh, Where did you come from? In a very real sense, you were given to yourself through the love of your parents. You are a person. You have never existed outside of a community of persons. You can't because that's part of what it means to be a person. You're a person in community of persons. Adam alone, the one time in the creation process where God said it's not good, (laughs) Adam alone was a dead end. It's not going to image God properly, right? As another man, uh, W. Norris Clark says, as images of God, we too must imitate in our own way the ecstatic, outgoing, self-sharing of God as infinite good. Personal development in a created person is to become more and more like God. To be is to be a lover. That's something we live with in every single moment. God's order of love emerges within the order that he creates here. He is calling forth through love an order in this world that participates in his love. Um, And by the way, just even think about this. He's not imposing it apart from his creatures. He's calling us into this order. That tells you, just as you think about yourself, you think about mankind in general, your existence is a sheer gift of love. You are a person. Now that has important ramifications for when we start talking about this thing called culture, mankind, uh, culture. Because we are image bearers of God, persons in community made to exercise uh, dominion, to relate to God, Uh, We can even say it this way. Culture is internal to nature. It's built in there. All the ways of living together and values of living together that humans develop are intrinsic to being human. We are designed to take in the world around us and to bring it to God as living sacrifices, which is why cult, religion, is always implicated in culture. You simply can't pull those apart. A good human culture helps people to live in reality. That's what it does. It properly responds to and reflects and directs people to what is really real. It's ordered toward knowing Christ. A conservative Christian mindset does not treat culture as an autonomous thing that operates on us from some neutral space outside of us. Nature is not mechanistic. (coughs) Pardon me. Uh, let me just pause there for a second and say sometimes that's hard for us to get as believers today even when we study our Bibles because in some ways we're taught to bring that thinking right into our reading of Scripture and we, if you will, explain away God's revelation in terms of culture uh, as if it's something outside of uh, this work of God that we're talking about here. But that's not the case. When we think about nature, we recognize that we're not merely talking about what's statistically common, just a statistical thing, what's in accordance with the laws of physics, or what is in the genes per se. What is natural to anything is what that thing is for. What is, what is in keeping with the very reason for existence of this thing? That's its nature. That's what it's for. And therefore, what is good for that is is precisely what it was made for. 
That's very different than the cultural relativism which permeates our modern way of thinking and which I believe so many Christians uncritically embrace. Now I'm going to have to uh, move on quickly tonight. Nobody stop me with questions. Okay, great. (laughs) I gave you a chance and now you're going to jump in. That's great. Okay. Um, yes. Hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll pick a kind of specific one that maybe you're familiar with. Um, the I, I mentioned about interpreting the Bible. Um, there's a very popular book on interpreting the Bible by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Um, maybe some of you are familiar with it. Um, has a lot of good things to say, talks a lot about genre and how to understand the Bible and uh, these kinds of things. Uh, but I would argue with it in one aspect from what we're talking about here <clears throat> when it comes to what they think of as cultural things contained in the Bible. Uh, and I hope I can remember this accurately. It's been a long time since I've looked at it. Uh, <clears throat> but they they would teach a believer who's trying to interpret the Bible well to say, um, you should ask yourself when you come across some of these things in the Bible that seem foreign to you, um, if it would have uh, been an issue to you at all if uh, if it hadn't been mentioned in the Bible. You know, if it was just, if it was something different than what you're used to and you read about it in the Bible um, and it kind of... Uh, it's strange wise well if if that's the case then probably what you're dealing with is something cultural you know some of that's what the ancient culture did it's really not part of what the bible is teaching us to do or anything like that um, i would argue that that's not an adequate way of addressing this at all um and that conservatives can do a whole lot better i think we should recognize just like with it in the process of inspiration all of the Bible is human, but ultimately all of the Bible is divine. And there's not a conflict there. We have to recognize that in order to understand it properly. So all of the Bible is cultural. I mean, how could it, if it's human, how could it not be? <laughs> it's in human language. It's in human historical settings. It's All of the Bible is cultural. And if you try to explain it away on the basis of culture, you could ultimately explain the whole Bible away. And one of the, let me just say one of the egregious ways of doing that, uh, which is even infiltrating uh, contemporary evangelicalism and things, would be, say, like on issues of, um, well, let's say, homosexual marriage. If we just define what the Bible talks about in these issues as, well, that was cultural. That was back then. The Apostle Paul was just speaking about things in his day. And we now know... We know better, you know. We're wiser, and and we know better. That doesn't apply to our culture. If you start that habit, you can explain anything away in the Bible that you don't happen to agree with. Uh, if you start going down that path, I would just say that would be one illustration of a completely inadequate way of trying to handle this kind of thing. And that if we're understanding things in light of Christ, we won't take that path because we don't think that way about mankind, about culture. Those kinds of things. So, great, great question. Hopefully, that's that's helpful in um, going there. All right, that actually uh, means we're we're getting toward the end of our time here tonight, and I don't want to keep everybody too late. Um, so, let me just say one more point here while I'm still on this topic of mankind, and then we'll we'll wrap up for tonight, and we'll pick up here uh, tomorrow evening. One other aspect when you think about mankind, even that's inherent in the the Nicene Creed, although it doesn't expound on this, and that is the reality of sin, right? Christ became a man. Why? (laughs) To save us from our sin. And I want to just make this point here. A conservative Christian mindset is deeply aware of how sinful we are. And therefore aware of the imperfectibility of our efforts and institutions this side of glory. Um, I said earlier that a Christian conservative recognizes the fundamental goodness of God's gift. That sin is not fundamental. Evil is not fundamental. And that's very important. We don't have to... Uh, well, I won't, I won't tr- chase that right now. 
But at the same time, evil is really there in our present world, and it has to be accounted for. Um, And so there's a kind of prudence, I think, that enters into our thinking when we recognize how imperfectible we are this side of glory. We're never going to be able to come up with the perfect system. What's that saying? Dreaming of systems so perfect that no one has to be good. It, It can't happen in this world. We look for Christ to come. <laughs> we do look for a, an eternal kingdom that will be gloriously good. That that kind of, it, it keeps us from a kind of hubris in our human endeavors, not only within the church, but in all of human society, when we recognize the reality of sin. <clears throat> Pardon me. So that way, in that way, a conservative Christian mindset, which is pursuing Christ and understanding revelation in light of him, is resolutely anti-utopian. Conservatives tend to be resistant to grandiose schemes to change the world. We're going to fix everything. Just follow me. I've got the answers. Well, no. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have to follow Christ patiently in his time and work out what that means to follow him. And so when people appeal to you, even in Christian terms sometimes, for fixing the world, uh, we, we remember... The mankind is is sinful, and um, we need Christ to change us. Now, let me just, I'll stop right there for tonight. We'll go on to the hope that we have to offer in relationship to this sin here. But um, I'm trying to, again, layer this truth, work out the reality of holding fast to Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> Pardon me. That implies... So many things. And so we're sketching out that way. Just like the early Christians before us that we've been using as examples here, we're wrestling to see Christ in all things and be resolutely faithful to that. So we are in the 21st century. And I hope this is helpful for you in starting to open up some of those vistas and starting to draw out some of these applications that we'll be talking about here. All right. I've gone a little bit over time here tonight, but any final questions or questions? thoughts. All right. Thank you. Looking, uh, welcome to take questions later as we uh, fellowship and talk. And would again invite you back tomorrow night. We'll go on to talk about salvation and then get into uh, something that I believe is really crucial for us as conservative Christians in 2022 in America. And that is reclaiming what it means to be the church uh, in light of Christ and working on that together. Uh, A real path forward, I believe, for us in fostering conservative Christianity. So, Pastor Nathan. I hope that you're catching a little bit as you're beginning to understand uh, what Jason is trying to show us from the Word. Uh, I hope you're catching a little bit of how different this is from the way of life that we're taught in our in our society um, so in, in our society you look at the world around you <clears throat> and you think of the world around you in terms of maybe what different things you're doing maybe you go to work or you go to school and maybe if you're a Christian then you add you add religion to that right um, there, there's what you eat and there's uh, how you train your children and then there's maybe hymns that you do. Uh, there's uh, how you dress. Uh, maybe I should have mentioned. Uh, I'm. I'm. Uh, this is my typical Sunday evening dress. Uh, I uh, a few years ago went to the Philippines, and uh, this is a barong. So this is their fancy. Uh, this is our fancy dress for for being fancy. And I love uh, a being reminded to pray for our missionaries who I visited there. Um, and then B, uh, uh, being able to dress up and be comfortable uh, in summer. Now it isn't summer anymore, but I like to milk it for all it's worth since it's since it's uh, Minnesota. But I'm getting off track. Uh, as we dress, as we eat, as we do everything we do, the world around us uh, encourages us not to think. How does Christ relate to this? How does Christ impact this? What does this mean because of who I am in Christ? Right? All, all of that is foreign to the world around us. 
right? You, you, if, if you're a Christian, you might choose to go to church. Or you might not. You, 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 you can do what you want with Christ. You can do what you want with adding on religion. And what, what Jason is encouraging us to remember is that's fundamentally opposed to Christianity. Christ is the center of it all. And all of it has to be how we think about Christ and how, uh, what, uh, sorry, say it the other way around. Everything else has to be thought about through Christ and because of Christ and in light of Christ. Um, so I hope uh, that uh, that's something that we see as we, as we think about these things uh, together. Um, we, we haven't been planning to uh, conclude in song, but I thought, if you're willing... Uh, hymn number 197 in the gray, uh, if I got the right number. It's just a great <clears throat> uh, a great summation of uh, thinking about Christ. Um, and so let us uh, join together in singing. I will take it just a little slow, the first couple verses, since maybe this hymn isn't very familiar to some of you. Um, but behold the glories of the Lamb, and it has a very conservative men leading uh, the last two lines there, uh, taking the melody. But I invite you, let's close in song. Hymn number 197, let's stand and sing, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. Be- people said Amen. Amen. it is good to praise our God it is good to live life in light of our Savior um, yesterday we had lots of food 
and lots of leftover food. And so informally, if you want to join us for more food, uh, there's lots of food. Uh, and we're happy to fellowship uh, around some more food. Um, God bless as you go forth. I pray that your vision might be filled with Christ. You are dismissed.